This episode of FYI All Things Mental Wellness is powered by Miss Emily. For the best in modern European cuisine and a dining experience unlike anything else on the border, check out missamily.com.au or search Miss Emily on Facebook. And now, on with the podcast. If you or a loved one need mental health assistance or are experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline 24-7 on 13 11 14. Welcome back to all of our amazing listeners, wherever you may be in the world. Today we are joined by a very inspiring young person, to say the least. They were born in Queensland and grew up in a family of four siblings. They referred to themselves as a typical tomboy growing up. They loved playing basketball, racing bikes and knocking around with their brothers and sister. Sadly, life would throw far too many challenges, including physical abuse, suicide childhood trauma, sexuality, mental illness, and a near-death car accident. Incredibly, after all that, they transformed physically and now identifies as non-binary, living life nowadays by the name of Caden. Caden Jenkin, welcome to FYI. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's a, a lovely introduction. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> it's weird um, hearing someone else like, Narrate your life, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it's a strange feeling, but thank this you. Is, this is your moment. Yeah. Well, Caden, just like previously, take us back as far as you want to take us back. Tell us about your childhood and and your family and and that first chapter of your life. Yeah, so, yeah, um, I grew up in Queensland in a place called Jimboomba. Uh, not many people know of it. It sounds a bit funny. Never heard of it. Uh, <laughs> It's in the in the sticks. Yeah, so I was born biologically female. I was always uh, a tomboy growing up. I was always into the boy stuff and got really mad if there was like, I guess, gender expectations and roles placed on me because I was born with a vagina. I'm like, what? I don't operate a motorbike with my vagina. Why can't I ride it? Like, <laughs> that it makes no sense. <laughs> yep. And I, it was a great, my parents were really open and accepting and they didn't, ever forced me to be like, oh, you're a girl, you can only do this. And they were very open to whatever I liked, I liked to do, they fostered that, which is awesome. Like I grew up, I raced BMX and got like, I raced state championships and stuff like that and played soccer and would build jumps in the backyard with my brother, all the typical quote unquote boy stuff. Yeah, yeah and that just resonated with me. Yeah, so I grew up there. When I was young, um, so when I was like nine, I, I experienced um, physical and sexual abuse from, at the time, like, well, I mean, in general, you're supposed to trust, that are supposed to love you. And that definitely, that is one of the biggest things, I suppose, that has, I guess, changed who I am as a person and will forever change me, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah. So that was hard to deal with. How old were you then? I was nine. Yeah. And the, with all of that that happened, I remember I had to go to the police station. My mum took me to the police station. I had to report it. And I remember the police officer, like, just, I guess, my innocence at the time, I remember him saying the word penis, and I giggled because I was like, ooh, he said penis. I'm like, yeah, because yeah, at the time I was like, 
Shows how young you were. Mm. Yeah. And I'm like, no one ever said that word like around me. So I don't know. It was strange. Mm. Um, But yeah, that was very confronting even reporting it because, I mean, I didn't fully understand or comprehend the whole situation. Then I had to talk about it in a really serious manner with a police officer. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Can you share with us the people responsible and the the circumstances? Um, So it was when I was young. There was two different people that um, were, I guess, involved in that, separate times, um, but around the same time frame. Um, and it was my big brother and one of his friends. They were six years older than me. So, like, yeah, what, early teens, 16. Yeah. That must have been challenging having to report something of, of that nature, you know, to the police when it was a sibling, I imagine. Well, actually... Um, so at the time, and to this day, I, I didn't actually tell my parents about my brother. They only know, and I only reported the friend. Sure. So, yeah. And I only... They still don't know to this day. I've never told them. Shit. Yeah. I feel like, I guess I'll open up later, but open, get to that point. But mm. now, he, my brother's dead. Like, he's not alive. I don't feel like it's really helpful to anyone to bring that up it's going to cause pain and hurt for my parents for my family and he he's not here to not defend himself but to give his perspective and to explain what was going on in his mind and his life at the time so yeah yeah i think i've dealt with it within myself and i think that's enough i don't think that i need to put that pain on my family the uh pretty incredibly noble Mm. of you yeah Considering the, considering the trauma and the and the pain that you would have gone through, yeah, to sit there and put somebody else's feelings and and memories in front of in front of you, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, it just makes sense in my brain, I suppose. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I suppose I don't want to ever uh, put hurt into the world because I know what it's like to have really shitty, really intense feelings mm. of hurt. So, yeah, if there's no benefit to that situation, then it's to me it's a no-brainer not to do that. Mm. Fair enough. So you, your report, is anything done about mm. it on an official level? So at the time I remember my mum, after going to the police and stuff, and obviously they spoke to the the guy and his family, and I remember mum telling me that the I'm just going to call him what he meant he is the rapist said that I was the one I held him down on the bed and that it was me that did things and I was I was a nine-year-old girl yeah obviously I feel like police the police I mean I don't know I'm I'm making assumptions but I'm sure that they would have clicked on and been like that that makes no sense (laughs) and my parents didn't believe that which is good but that definitely uh, made something in me, I guess at that time uh, of like, definitely had shame and like, oh, yeah, people are going to believe me. Like I'm mm. a kid, no one's going to believe me. And like he's older than me, he's he's an adult, like not an adult, but mm. like they're going to believe him. And yeah, so that was a big thing for a long time in my head that I had to work through. What, what did the recovery process look like? You know, the the 
the months after, the, the years after? How did it change the dynamic in your household, the way your brother uh, behaved around you, you know, with the way your par- did your parents act on your brother's friends coming to and from the house or...? Yeah, so my parents did were great in the fact that they compl- uh, they completely cut contact with that entire family. And um, we were, uh, I guess, I played basketball, and that family played basketball too. And that's, I think, how that's how we met. So we stopped going to basketball. They completely cut them out of our lives, pretty much, which I think was a good thing. I think it would have been worse if they didn't do that. Yeah, but there was never any kind of psychological help or anyone to talk to about it at all Um, my mum tried to talk to me about it um so like in i like maybe i don't know what the time frame was but maybe weeks after mum would come into my room at night time and just want to talk to me about it but at the time it was very confronting and i didn't feel comfortable and i think i also blamed myself and i i guess that was the shame i was like oh this is my fault and like he said that i did this so mum's talking to me and is like, I want to know, like, what did you do? And I think that's what I felt at the time. So then I just asked her to stop talking to me and she did. But there was never any kind of mental health or psychologist, yeah, help at all. GP? No. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty pretty cold way to. Yeah, it's a lot to, lot to live with and a lot to, as much as your mother obviously was so, so supportive. She did the best she could with what she knew. Yeah, exactly. Thank God we've come a, a long way since those days. So what next? What what, um, what sort of did the next few years look like? So I feel like like primary school was great for me. I loved primary school. I had like I had my own little gang. It was like me and a bunch of boys. And yep. we just did silly things and threw rocks at each other and whatnot and it was fun. And then when I got to high school I think that's when things really started to, I guess, happen, especially with my sexuality. I remember getting to high school and, like, all my friends were like, oh, my God, this boy's so cute. And then I I was actually having, like, feelings and crushes on my friend that just said that that boy's so cute. (laughs) And I was like, this is weird. (laughs) Like, I don't think that, hmm, strange. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Yeah, Yeah, but I, I think my mental health, like, with probably when, from when I was 13 was when it, I first started to self-harm. That was the first time I did that. And I think that was directly linked to everything that happened when I was a kid that I had never dealt with. Yeah, and then for years after that, my I just I think I went through cycles of just terrible I guess mental health. I went I did a lot of drugs. I when I was when I was 15, I think was when I first did drugs. And I sought that out because I wanted to feel something that, some, just something that wasn't what I was feeling. Terrible coping mechanism, but that in my tiny little brain at the time mm. was a good idea. Well, there's nothing, there's nothing available prescription-wise to help you through trauma and, and the struggles of life that there is these days, you know, so. And even like just mental health, like uh, psychology or counselling and that sort of thing, I think back then was like it was worse than it is now. Like now is definitely moving forward and it's doing better, but it still needs improvement. But back then it was a lot less. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was 16, my big brother actually committed suicide. So that was, I think that was one of the 
biggest catalysts, I guess, in my life for because of everything that had happened. And then he did that. And I definitely, our relationship was very strained after the abuse and stuff. I didn't feel comfortable being around him. I didn't necessarily really like him at all. He was very like physically violent with me um, after that point. So I just kind of avoided him a lot. And I, I think I have one kind of positive memory of him. And then, yeah, so he committed suicide when I was 16. He was 22. And then that kind of just made me spiral even more, I think. And that's continuing on when you say spiral. Is that with your drug abuse? Um, that's, I'm, I think that the, that actually was the catalyst to me seeking that. Yeah. So much to deal with. Mm. Mm. And your, your other sister and brother, mm-hmm. what, how's, the, how's the household around this time? Like how? Uh, I mean, it's even going back when you were nine, mm. you know, you've got other brothers and sisters. Did they ever find out? Did they, yeah. did they know about your abuse? Did they know, what, did they know what you were going through? Did any, you know, were they talking to you? Uh, so me and my little brother were really close. Like we were like two peas in a pod. We were like little, just had lots of energy running around, breaking things and building stuff and whatnot. Yeah, my sister was more so she kind of kept to herself a lot. I know my big brother was a little bit physical with her a little bit, but nothing else. And I, they neither of them knew anything that was going on and my parents didn't tell them. Like, I mean, they didn't know my, my brother, but with the other guy, my parents didn't tell them about it, like when it happened. So your siblings didn't know about your abuse at that time? No. And I only told my sister about stuff probably maybe four or five years ago. Gosh. Yeah, my little brother was like last year, I think. Yeah. Wow. God, you've kept a lot to yourself, haven't you? Yeah. I felt like I think that was a protective mechanism too. And I, over time and with my experiences, I guarded myself a lot and I kept everything inside and... That was just pr- to protect myself. I'd mm. like, yeah, put walls up, massive walls, and like no one can hurt me if these walls are up. Mm. It's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking there, tr- trying to analyze it, not trying to analyze you, but the situation. And y- you had very understanding parents. Yeah. But yet you still put walls up. Yeah. Do you think it was shame or? I think it was a very, very. Sorry, words. A lot to do with shame. Yeah. Yes, 100%. And I feel like that's taken me years to actually work through. Yeah. Yeah. So 16 to adulthood, what what did that look like? Was the drug abuse still happening or? Yeah, so that's when I, I guess, started on that road. Yep. Either the first time I tried to take my life, I was 16. It was maybe three months or so after my brother passed away because I blamed myself. At the time, I blamed myself for my brother doing that mm. because of everything. I think, yeah, I was like, well, yeah, it's my fault. Your brother taking his life, mm. you blamed yourself. Yeah. Can you explain some other emotions connected with that? Yeah, I felt like I blamed myself because I felt like he had a more difficult life because of me. I guess in now that I can think about it in a, better way I suppose Mm. it was his actions that 
created him or made his life not as good as it could have been. Yeah, it wasn't anything I did. It was the repercussions of his actions. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. But at the time in my brain, I was like, well, it's my fault. Like I was the one that caused him to get angry. I was the one that caused him to touch me in that way. Like, yeah. Wow. So sorry, Dave. We were going from 16 to 18 to 16. You attempted taking your own life. Thank God that was unsuccessful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what what were the times directly after that like how how do you recover from an attempted suicide uh honestly the the mental health system wasn't good then i mean it's yeah the, i think from my experiences i've been in a few mental health wards due to like attempts of, of suicide and they kind of my experience was they kind of just put you in in this room until you kind of calm down a bit and then they're like, okay, you can go now. You're not going to kill yourself right now. Go on. So medication, therapy, anything like that available to you when you're in these places? Um, when I was 16, so the first time that yep. I attempted, um, my parents did take me to the doctors and they prescribed me with um, an antidepressant. Yep. I didn't take that properly. I wasn't regular with it. I didn't, I didn't really give it a chance to actually work. Yep. I'm not sure why that is. I don't know. I think I just forget or I don't know. You're I, 16. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And I had so much other things in my head. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't really take that. As then. regular as you should have, yeah. Yeah. And then it was maybe a few months after that, my parents, I did actually get like a, a referral to a child psychologist because I was technically a child mm-hmm. at the time. That was when I was 17, and she was really great, actually. I saw her for about four months because once I turned 18, I couldn't see her anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was super helpful. I remember, because I'd never talked about any of it before, I remember sitting in the room and my whole body, I was just shaking. Every appointment, I was shaking. And like just because of, I don't know, like talking about things just made that physiological reaction in me. And it took me years to get to a point where I could go to therapy and my body wouldn't shake. Wow. Mm. That's brave that you continued to go. Mm. Yeah. It was definitely. Yeah, the easy options to back out when you're that bad. So, yeah, it takes a lot of bravery. Just so, also yeah. reliving, like reliving everything from mm. you, yeah. from the past. Like it's, some people, some people never recover mentally from these circumstances in life you know abuse losing a sibling you know seeing your sibling and what he'd done to himself you know like these kind of things people Mm. never recover from that's right you know it's just incredible to see you now sitting here talking about these things Mm. being so comfortable which is um yeah mind-blowing it took a lot of work Mm. and Mm. time i think to to get to the point where you are, yeah. I, I guess I, I have a question. Uh, up until the age of 16, 17 and, say, 18, do you think sexuality played any part in what was going on mentally? Like d- did it play any hand in any attempts? Did it ha- play any any sort of role in your 
mental ill health, I guess? Um, I think it was definitely a difficult time in my head because I didn't really know. Like uh, I was trying to figure it all out. I was like, I'm I'm attracted to women. (laughs) Like, hmm. When was that, Caden? So the first, I think that was when I was like 13 was when I, I started having like, you know, the typical crushes. Yeah. That most people have at that age. Yeah, yeah. But it was just on people with the same sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and navigating that world, especially living in Queensland in a country town where mm. it's quite conservative still nowadays in Queensland, mm. I was kind of fortunate. So my older sister, she came out as a lesbian when she was 14 and that yep. was in school and it was – she kind of paved the way for me a little bit and was supportive. It was a support for me, but I also saw the um, how she was treated in that environment in school when she came out. Like she was bullied and I saw that firsthand and I was like, oh, Holy I'm shit. going back in the closet. Yeah. Like I'm not coming out of there. <laughs> like, this place is warm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, yeah, no way. Um, so she was 14. How old were you? I was 12. Yeah. Yeah, 12, 13, yeah. So you got front row seats mm. and how life looked for her once coming out. Yeah. And I'm, I don't know anything about this, but can there be that uh, hormone roller coaster as well? Like as a, as a young woman, could these kind of changes, attra- attraction to other women, not, you know, you feeling like a man sometimes, can, can all these – Roller coasters of emotions add to all the all the feelings that you were having at the same time. Yeah, um, I think I think it just complicated relationships. Mm. I mean, it was already complex to want to be with someone of the same sex, but then with my trauma history, it complicated it even more because I had all of this baggage that I hadn't dealt with, mm. and I couldn't actually connect on an emotional level with anyone because I was still so hurt and unhealed. So it was, yeah, definitely complex. Had, had you spoken to your sister at all um, about your feelings and, and knowing that you were yeah, gay? Yeah, I remember we were walking home from the bus one afternoon and we were just walking up the road. And I think at that time she was 15 and I was like 13, 14. And I said to her, I was like, oh, Melissa, I have something that I need to talk to you about. And she's like, oh, yeah, what? And I was like, I think I'm gay. And she was just like, you can't be gay too. <laughs> I was like, I can't help it. Yeah. She's like, mom's going to be so disappointed. She really wants grandkids. I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, I can't help it. But she was actually very supportive. But yeah. Did she help you through that process? A little bit, but not really. I think she was, she was definitely consumed with her own things. And I think that was, I guess, surrounded by being bullied at school for being who she was. Yeah, so I did talk to her a bit and, like, she was supportive. Like, when I turned 18, like, she took me to my first gay bar and... Oh, wow. Yeah, and, like, supported me in that way. And she was good to talk to, but we didn't do it extensively, I suppose. Yeah. And what about the support from your mum and dad also around around that time? Not only with sexuality and all all the emotions you were going through and coming out as well, but also the, the suicide... You know, there wasn't only one time, it was multiple times. What? How was the how was the nurturing, how was the love and the support from mum and dad at the time? 
Um, I think my parents did the best that they could with the resources they had. Mm. Um, I think there was never discussions about the suicide attempts afterwards or like checking in or any kind of, I don't know, emotional care. And I think that just stems down to my parents and their level of emotional maturity. Mm. They couldn't give me what I needed in that moment of my life because they didn't have it mm. yeah. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Such a shame. Mm. I, it almost feel. I mean, I mean this in the nicest possible way, but it almost feels like a lot of your problems were swept under the rug. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it was just kind of like, oh, well, yeah, we just don't talk about that. That's just so, that. <laughs> so difficult to comprehend. But to be fair, it's, it wasn't just um, – say, your parents, it was you too. You, you were keeping everything yeah. closed and in and protected and even, you know, before you joked about having that discussion with your sister and saying, you know, well, she's saying, well, you got to come out, mum and dad want grandkids. Yeah. Like, again, someone's trying to halter your development and you mm. being who who you wanted to be. So that's bloody tough. Mm. So adulthood. Yeah, so when I turned 18, I ended up moving into state down to a place called Ulladulla. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful little place. Yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. Um, yes, I moved down there to live with some family friends. So we had um, a family friend living in the backyard in a caravan when my brother died, and she was there with us when we all found him and stuff. And her, both of her parents actually committed suicide, so it was a lot for her. She was my rock at that time. Like I avoided being around my family. I didn't want to be at home. I'd go to work with her. She'd go to work and I'd just go to work with her and hang out, not really do that much, but I just couldn't be around my family at the time. Anyway, I ended up, when I turned 18, I ended up moving in with her and her family in Ulladulla. Yeah. And yeah, I remember one of her conditions or her only condition, her and her husband, they were like, your only condition, you can move in with us and we're happy to do that, but you can't self-harm anymore. And I didn't, and yeah, which was awesome because I, I was self-harming for a long, yeah, it was my coping mechanism. It was, mm. I needed to punish myself for what I felt like I had done and no one else was doing that, so I had to do it to myself. Did this feel like a, a safer haven for you? Yeah. You know, considering how you've grown up, with your mum and dad and living with your mum and dad, this must have felt like a safe haven, two new kind of guardians almost. I would not be the person I am today without them. I think they helped me so much. Just even with small things, like, I mean, I could talk to both of them. Like I, like my dad, you can talk to him about some things, but he, I don't I just doesn't talk about things super deeply, I guess. Whereas like this guy... I could, and, like, he was a really healthy kind of male role model that I could actually talk to about things, and so was his wife. And then, like, they had two kids, and I hung out with them, and, yeah, they really helped me. Start again almost. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Mm. And I think that's what I needed at that time to... Reset. Yeah, get away. Yeah, I can picture it. Sun's out, Mm -hmm. fresh air, new people, new faces, new support, like it can do wonders for you. I'm very grateful Good for them. On them. Mm. Good on them. Then what? Um, so 
yeah, I moved there. Obviously, my mental health, I still hadn't dealt with anything. That's when, so before, when I turned 18, I remember, I don't know, I had an argument with my mom one day and left the house and I was just driving around and I was like, stuff it, I'm going to get a tattoo. So I went to the tattoo shop and I was like, I'm going to get this star on my wrist. And they're like, okay, what color do you want in it? And I was like, ah, I can't pick one. So I just got all of them. It's, it's a rainbow. And then I ended up coming home and mum's like, she, well, first off, she was like, do you purposely do things that piss me off? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> but then she was like, she asked me if I was gay. And I didn't actually under, know at the time that r- a rainbow meant that like it was the symbol for gay, gay things. Pride. Yeah. And I was like, no. And then just stormed off because I was like, oh, shit, she knows. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and anyway, I moved to Ulladulla and I made friends with this group of people and there was a few gay people in that group. And um, one of the girls were just sitting at dinner and she looked over at me and she saw my tattoo and she said in the middle of dinner, just out loud, she's like, oh, my God, are you gay? And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, I hadn't come out to anyone and I was like, oh, shit. And then I actually, in the first instance, I was like, oh, no, I'm bisexual. Uh-huh. I'm not really gay. I'm like half. Uh. <laughs> did you know? Did, did, did you know what yeah. your sexuality was? At the time, yeah. I yeah. was like, I'm pretty gay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, I was just definitely afraid and, yeah. Was that the first time anyone ever asked you? My mum had asked me in the past, like, growing up, and I would just respond in the same way and be like, no, I'm not gay. Just, yeah, I guess I was just not ready. Um, yep. Have there been any boyfriends along the journey? Uh, so, I mean, I remember, so I, I quit school when I was 15 to work in kitchens and I I remember I was worked with a, just a few people and my sister was gay and she worked there too and I remember there was one time the some people were calling us um, the Scissor Sisters <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, right. So I ended up dating this guy that I worked with for like three months. I think I hugged him twice just because he was my beard. It was like, I'm going to date this guy because then they'll think I'm straight. Mm. And, yeah, luckily for me, he was actually pretty okay with just hugging me twice for three months. (laughs) So that was cool. (laughs) Maybe he's going through the same battle. Yeah, yeah, literally. (laughs) But I dated like maybe two guys for that reason. Yeah, same situation. I think... I dated one guy, I think we kissed, and the next day I broke up with him because I was like, oh, what was that? <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> yeah, so. Wow. So you get this tattoo, you, you're showing the world that you're gay, but you didn't mean. No, I didn't mean to. Didn't I was like, it. oh, shit, I put my foot in that one. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. So you're in Aladala, mm. you've sort of told them at dinner that you're bi because yeah. you know what to say. And What happened then? Um, I think then, I mean, I, I guess I felt a lot more comfortable actually exploring that because I was around people that were openly and uh, openly gay and confident within that. So eventually I got to the point where I was like, yeah, I'm definitely not bisexual. <laughs> yep. Like I'm pretty gay. Yep. Um, yeah, so then I kind of, I guess, started exploring that and I ended up having like my first – same-sex relationship, that was definitely, um, am I allowed to say the swear words? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's definitely a shit show. <laughs> um, but we were both young and, yeah, 
just young and dumb really, I suppose. But yeah, I remember before dating like for for years actually, probably f- probably from well maybe like 17 to 19, I, w- I had um I was a massive prude and I was very against any kind of sex. I was like, nope, it's disgusting. I never want to do that. You're all disgusting. You all do that. And it made, I felt more strongly about straight people having sex. I think it was just the dick thing, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember I picked up one of my friends from a, a beach because she'd met up with a guy and they'd ended up doing their thing in the car and I wouldn't let her touch my door or the seatbelt or anything. <laughs> I was like, I opened the door for her. She sat in the car. I put the seatbelt on. I'm like, do not touch any of my things. I don't want the dick germs in my car. <laughs> Uh, but yeah and I, I think that the aversion and stuff to sex for a long time was because of my childhood experiences and that the only experience that I had um up until I had healthy experiences was that that was a ter- terrible thing and it was not allowed and like big bad things happen I guess from that experience like going to the cops and it, all, your whole life changes mm. and yeah and it's not what you're supposed to do and yeah, all that sort of thing. And you're soon after this about to cha- take your body on a a massive life-changing transition. What's before we get to that point, what what emotions are going through your head and your understanding of of that process and what what's the driving point behind where you are today, Caden? I think with the, I guess, being trans, I think for a long time I had internalised transphobia and I think a lot of peop- trans people have that. Just like, I remember experiences when I was in school, like because I was a massive tomboy, like a lot of kids would be like, are you a boy or a girl? <laughs> or like call me a man or whatever. Like it was an insult to be born female but like masculine things. Mm. So I guess I internalized that over years and I definitely had thoughts around transitioning and stuff, but I never allowed myself to actually feel that or think it was an option because of that internalized transphobia. Because of the external pressure? Yeah, because of my experiences, I guess, growing up of being like, that's not okay or it's bad or it's like disgusting or... Even like no one's going to love you. Who's going to love you if you mm. look like a man but you have a vagina? Yeah, there's so many different, I guess, elements to that. But it took me a long time to actually get over the internalized transphobia and accept that I want, I wanted to p- appear masculine and that that was okay. I can actually be okay in feeling that. So you, you, you want to appear male, I guess, on the outside, but you were happy with your female Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, my gender identity, I identify as non-binary because mm. I don't, I don't have the desire to be a man. I have, I have no shame or like any, I don't know, negative feelings about the fact that I was born a woman or that I spent most of my life as a woman, I think that's actually one of my powers. I can actually understand both sides and humanity, I think, more broadly, especially with testosterone. I didn't actually anticipate it, but so many things have changed, even the way I think, the way I feel emotions, the way I process stuff has changed just from that hormone. 
but yeah, I think I have a, yeah, I have no shame and like I have no, like gender dysphoria can come in all different kinds of ways, I suppose. For me, my breasts, like my boobs, I, from puberty, when they first started growing, I felt this like intense, uh, I don't know, like wrongness and like kind of like, dis not disgust, but like it just didn't fit. And like, I was like, what is this? I don't want this on my body. And it's not that, like, I love boobs. They're great. I'm clearly attracted to boobs, but just not on my body. Mm. I don't want to own them. Yeah, but I don't feel that way. Like, so trans men, typically trans men can feel like bottom dysphoria, which is where they feel that kind of feeling, but about their genitals and they want to get surgery to have a penis. I've never felt that. I'm quite happy that I have a vagina. I think it's it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel anything. And that's why I don't want to identify as a trans man because I'm not. And I don't want to be considered as a man because I'm not. Like I'm non-binary. I'm, I'm really, I'm just a human. I'm just me. I'm just, I just look a little different. That's right. Yeah. That's what I like. So... Again, I, I'm probably sounding really naive and, and these are questions floating around in my mind of, well, you know, you, your genitals are there, but what, what, what about your boobs? Tell us because people can't see. So yeah. Oh, yeah, we true. need to tell them. <laughs> we need uh, to tell them what's going on, Caden. Yeah. Uh, well, so, we don't need to as long yeah, as you're comfortable uh, too. I'm comfortable. Yeah, so I had top surgery, which is um, a double mastectomy um, and – it was a big process to have that. It's a big process to start hormones and then it's an, it's another process to have any kind of surgery. And I knew from before I even considered myself as trans, like I remember when I was maybe 15 or 16, I was like, I don't want boobs. I'm going to cut them off. <laughs> and I would often think about just getting a knife from the kitchen and just lobbing them off myself. I'm like, what would that look, would look like? Would I die? Would that work? <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I think I'd have bigger scars if I did that. Yeah, so, and I remember I told my mum once when I was young, like in my teens, I was like, mum, I'm going to cut my tits off. <laughs> and she was just like, no, you can't do that. Why would you want to do that? I was like, cause. And then that was it, because I didn't actually know how to verbalise and mm. explain what I was feeling, because mm. I didn't have the language I didn't have the language when I was young to know what non-binary was or like, mm. uh, or it's more so to put a label on my feelings rather yeah. than, yeah, anything else. Um, yeah, so I got top surgery, when was that? Uh, would be two years ago. Wow, it's recent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, oh, I remember, so before I had top surgery, I um, lots of trans people, trans people with biologically female trans people um, wear binders. And they are like a really tight singlet thing that squishes down your, your boobs. You just kind of like push them to the side and like squish them down. And I wore, I remember the first time I put one of those on, my girlfriend at the time was really, I don't think I'd be at the point I am without her either because she was very encouraging and accepting of my transness and me exploring that. She provided me with a safe space to feel comfortable to do that and I'll, forever be grateful for that but yeah she was there and she was like oh one of my other friends or our friend was a trans man and he had a spare binder and she was like oh you should put this on and I put it on and I like I teared up because like I looked in the mirror and I was like oh my god like this is what I've always wanted like a flat chest 
And like I felt that feeling. I was like, no, nah, I'm doing it. Like these is they just have to go. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So Wow. Yeah. And um compared to I mean the the car accident and like all the other surgeries with that, like the mm. the pain from top surgery was nothing. I was like, I could do this eight times and this will be fine. <laughs> Can you just briefly sorry, we um jumped ahead of the pack a little bit yeah. before. So yeah, massive incident <clears throat> here in Albury. Yeah, yeah. With a cab. Yeah, taxi. Yeah. Um, so I was just out with some friends and the majority of the group of my friends had gone to another pub because they got kicked out because they were drunk. And me and one of my friends, we just stayed back to play some darts. And anyway, we left. We are just walking down the road, crossed the road to get to the pub. And a taxi, like, hit us, like, ran us over. Yeah, so I broke my neck, my back, my arm, my leg and my ankle. And Shit. Extremely lucky to be alive. So I broke, like, my C1. And if the bone had broken... The x-ray is like, it's like if it broke inwardly, I would be paralyzed or dead, but it broke outwardly. Very, very lucky. And would that be the the, the angle that you were hit? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea, but. How yeah. long ago was that, Kevin? Three years ago. So 2019 was in June. And you've mentioned to me previously the recovery process was a a healing mechanism for your not only your body and all the trauma that it's been through, but also for your mental wellness. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain a bit more to our listeners about that? Yeah, so I did, I had started therapy, I think it was just before the accident, and I, it was actually, so just before the accident, I was um, heavily using drugs again, and then the accident happened, and yeah, so I was getting mental health help at the time. The accident was a catalyst for me because it showed me, I think it was partly due to when something else is threatening to take your life that isn't you. I think that was one big thing. And then another realisation, I guess, was um, how fragile life actually is mm. and and how lucky I was, like, even despite like the experiences I had experienced, how lucky I was and how privileged I was, I still am, but like before the accident that I didn't even realise. But therapy definitely helped. Uh, I was definitely, definitely had days where I'd just be in my wheelchair on my neck brace and just cry all day just because I didn't know if I was going to need surgery. Like, I mean, I needed, ended up needing more surgery and stuff. Um what what life was going to look like? Yeah, well. I didn't know if I was going to be able to recover fully, like what my body would be like now. And I'm still going through that, I suppose. I'm still exploring my ability and what I can and can't do. And After the accident was when you started taking the testosterone? Yeah, so it was – I was still in a neck brace when I went to uh, – because you have to go to like a specific uh, gender GP or a GP that is – trained and specialised in that. Mm-hmm. Local? And, Local? Yep, yep. Yeah. The only one around here and she's amazing. Yeah, so I went to her and I remember sitting on the bed with my neck brace. Like I'd already had appointments with her. It was before the accident. And then when I was finally able to actually walk and get there, yeah, I went in there with my neck brace on and I was like, okay, I really want testosterone. Like let's get this going. I wanted it previously, but then obviously car accident happened and stuff. Yeah, and then – 
we did what we had to do for that and started testosterone. And I think testosterone actually helped my body, I think, heal a lot better. So I, I think, I, like, I mean, I have muscles now that I'd never had in my life before. Mm. I don't have to do much to maintain my muscles, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to before, I was like, I always had this thing in my head. I'm like, oh, if some random person wanted to fight me, like I could defend myself. And I'm like, yeah, if a dude wanted to fight me, I could defend myself. And now I'm like, there's no freaking way. I would have got smashed. <laughs> but I'm like, now maybe a little bit more I could. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Yeah. So I'll just backtrack real quickly. You said just before your accident you'd um, started drug abuse and stuff again. You went through a really bad patch. Did yeah. you, what, why is that, do you think? I think I'd still not had any therapy. Any, I didn't work through anything. Um, okay. I had. So we're talking sort of mid to late 20s. Yep. Yep. So that was when I was, the car accident happened when I was 27. I was 26. Mm. Yeah. So almost 20 years of, tra- you know, mm-hmm. 20 years of psychological mm. struggles. Yep. Yep. How, how does life, I'm jumping backwards and forwards because I've got a million questions <laughs> running around in my head and there's a lot going on. Mm. Um, we probably could have done a series one, two and three with you, Caden. When, when you, you know, you, you had your top surgery, when you started taking testosterone, quite clearly your body's different and it's changing. And how was that out in the community? How did the average person outside of your inner circle how did that look? Uh, it was definitely a massive in- adjustment and it was actually very, it was almost like a social experiment. Um, like, and I studied I studied psychology at uni and so I feel like I really liked the fact that I was kind of a, a psychological experiment mm-hmm. <laughs> of my own. Like, yeah. So when I started to appear more masculine, like certain kinds of people would treat me differently. And it was very interesting and it showed me even more so about like with gender inequality and the way that typically cis men treat women. And yeah, just so many different things within, a, I guess, a societal societal com- constructs. Yeah. Um, yeah, that I noticed. And then it, eventually I got to the point where I guess I, I, I passed. That's what trans people call it when you take your – Hormones, and then you pass as that gender that you want. Except, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So when I started passing as a male, it's not wasn't my goal. But people, I mean, everyone makes judgments. Like you look at someone, you're like, oh, dude, woman. It's built into us from when we we're kids. Yeah. Binary, sex, gender. Yeah. yeah. So when people started using he, him pronouns for me, just automatically because that's what the assumption that they made. I, mm. I was always like, oh, that's weird. Mm. <laughs> it kind of felt strange at first, but then like. It was also the comparison to that was the people that knew me and that were close to me would um that like they had trouble changing from she her pronouns mm. and it honestly feels worse when people say she her pronouns and he him like uh, being misgendered can make different trans people feel differently but most of the time being misgendered is very hurtful but for me it's more so about safety and like. If I'm in a, a group setting with people that I don't know, specifically it's mostly cis men because they're the people that have only – they're the only kinds of people that have really ever shown aggression or hurt toward me. 
So I'm more skeptical about, I guess, those kind of people. I must, <laughs> I must ask, I must ask a little cheeky one. Yeah, yeah. What bathroom do you go to in public? So that is actually a, a daily struggle because <laughs> yeah. it's like I would much prefer to go to a women's bathroom because, like, I need to sit to pee. Yeah. And I feel safe in a women's bathroom. But I know that now, because I appear like I'm a male, yes. that would make females in that bathroom feel uncomfortable. Mm. But then, so it's either I have to choose between my comfortability and others' comfortability. Mm. Yeah. Most of the time, if I can, I'll go to like a, an accessibility toilet or very rarely they'll actually have gender neutral toilets. In I mean, places like Melbourne and Sydney and stuff, that's yeah, more common. Yeah, getting better. Yeah. And, like, my uni had a gender-neutral toilet, and that was cool. Yeah, but, like, every day if I'm out in public, I have to make that conscious choice of, like, mm. okay. And, like, man, male's toilets are the worst place oh, on the yeah. earth, man. I'd, I'd probably prefer oh. to use a woman's toilet. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> man. They're, they're fine. They're so bad. Oh. Um, <laughs> now, I've got uh, – Nadia's going to finish with a few – Oh, hang on. I've got, I've oh, got a I've few got, more. I've got one more, too. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got a few more questions. But just when you were saying there how, obviously, the pronouns you prefer is um, – the They, them. Correct. Do you, do, do you take offence if somebody does refer to you as him or she? Like – because we're all about here educating people out there and, you know, we're, we're hoping that this discussion today people are more empathetic and, and more understanding. Mm. But how do you feel if someone goes, you know, hey, mate, or, you know, or him over there or, or can you grab her? How do you feel? Yeah. Um, because you, you, you can't blame someone, I guess, like you said, we've grown up, most of us used to the – him and her. Yeah. So how do you how do you tackle it and what advice have you got to others? Yeah. So I feel like for myself, I mean, me as a person in general, I'm very um understanding and I don't know, accepting and patient. Even for myself in the beginning when I changed my pronouns to they them, I stuffed it up for myself. So I don't I'm not going to get mad at someone if someone is trying and they're actively trying to mm. respect you. Then I would never be mad at them for that. If someone is deliberately using the wrong pronoun to be hurtful, then I would get mad at that. Mm. Um, Fair. But it's all about just trying. And if you do mess up someone's pronoun, like, don't make a big deal out of it. If you are like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, like, ah, oh, I mean, he, ah, uh, then it it kind of puts the responsibility on the trans person to be like, it's okay, but it's yeah. not okay. Yeah, yeah. It's just like you just need to. Be like, oh, she, he, blah, blah, blah. Just continue on. Mm. Correct yourself and move on. Mm. Don't make a big deal about it. And eventually, if you keep doing that, like, it's just practice. Yeah, of and course. You have to, like, I mean, we're raised in a binary system from birth. So Correct. it's retraining your brain and building a new neural pathway in your brain to use they, them pronouns or for to change a pronoun for someone that you've known for years. It can be right. hard. Yeah. It's nice to hear that. Yeah, of course. Um, now, we are all about trying to make a difference in the world and helping others. There might be other young Cadens out there, mid to late teens, going through these mental battles with 
their emotions and their sexuality and and all the same troubles and they might be listening to this what can you tell them about how Caden Jenkins sees the world today and the positive what can you how can you inspire these people to take action in their own life tell them how you see the world paint them a a pretty rainbow picture um one thing that i i guess it took a while to accept um or not even accept just to get too was like you are in control of your own life your emotions aren't in control of you you are in control of them but sometimes you need therapy to help you be able to do that but if something's not working in your life it's up to you to change that nothing will change if you don't choose to do it you've actually got to step up and just run at it like if you don't do that then nothing will change you won't get anywhere or get through something. Mm. I also feel like for me one really important and big thing in my life that helped me is having the right people around you. A support network that actually loves and supports you will be the most valuable thing to your life. Yeah. Good advice. Mm. Good and advice. therapy, therapy. I cannot recommend therapy. therapy. therapy See therapy. a psychologist because if I hadn't had seen a psychologist I wouldn't be here right now I would mm. probably be dead a psychologist like one of the psychologists I had after the accident like she changed my life but really she helped me change my life mm. and are you the happiest you've ever been now yeah yep I've never had such good mental health I never thought I would even reach the age that I am I never thought that I would have a life I never thought I'd have a job that I have and yeah be able to maintain life and want to actually live it it's awesome good on you well done you're a, you're a bloody inspiration <laughs> i'm just me kate <laughs> mm. we ask i don't know how many is here five six questions i don't have my glasses on to read them <laughs> just a bit of fun yeah are you a camper or a five star um a bit of both i think it depends on the occasion yeah, yeah i like a yeah both Pineapple on pizza, yay or nay? Yes, of course. Mm. Pineapple and on pizza. And you're a chef. Yeah, why wouldn't you put pineapple on pizza? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, two chefs. <laughs> um, early riser or night owl? Night owl. I think that's because of a chefing life too. Yeah. <laughs> Beach or snow f- snowfields? Can I have both? Yeah. Both. Absolutely. <laughs> you can have whatever you like. Yeah. yeah. Lager or craft beer? Craft beer. On your tombstone in how old are you, 30? We'll give you another 60 at least, another 60-odd <laughs> years on your tombstone head. What what would be a, a slogan or, you know, just something you want to be known as or, or a statement that Caden represents? Um, bit on the spot, isn't it? Yeah. I think I would want it to say, you have the power within you. Yeah. Beautiful. Love it. Caden, thank you so much. It's um, I've personally learnt a lot about lots of things. <laughs> mm. um, we caught up with you earlier and, and obviously in this discussion today you've certainly broadened my knowledge um, and I hope listeners and, and both Dave and myself as individuals can mm. help, you know, educate people on on non-binary and, and trans and, you know, the challenges that, you know, you go through. So thank you for being brave enough to come on and have a chat. You're a superstar. Thank you.
thanks for having me. I'm honestly like just happy to be here. And if I can use my experience to help other people in this world, I will always do that. Good awesome. stuff. This episode was edited by Deadset Podcasting. If you want your podcast to sound this good, check out deadsetpodcasting.com forward slash services. Get the sound you're chasing.